0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I used to live my life a quarter mile
1: at a time. But things changed. My father, now, I will always
0: be in your heart. Did Vin Diesel say that he's a grandfather now? He did not. Okay, because I thought he said grandfather. thought maybe I missed one of these many installments Uh and was behind.
2: That's F-19. Give it a little while, Josh. Diesel's Dominic Toretto is a father to little Brian, naturally. He's also ageless. That's from the trailer for the ninth film in the long-running Fast and Furious
0: series, or F-9, to fans like us, Josh. Mm, this week on the show, we've got a review of F9 plus a replay of our top five Fast and Furious moments. Ride or Die. Ahead on Film Spotting.
2: Welcome to Film Spotting. The original Fast and Furious movie came out 20 years ago, Josh. If back in 2001, I'd asked you which movie released that year would spawn eight sequels. What are the chances you would have guessed The Fast and the Furious? I'm not even sure you watched The Fast and the Furious when it came out.
0: Whoa, 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 whoa. Back up. Fan of the original Fast and Furious. I knew that. I just thought maybe you caught up with it. Oh, no. No, I was was on board from the get-go, but to your question, Adam, no, there's no way I would have expected we'd be here today, nor that the series would take the shape it has.
2: The Furious Saga is dominating pop culture, and it's dominating this show. Later in this episode, we'll revisit the top five that earned us our place in the quarter mile at a time club from 2015. It's our top five Fast and Furious moments.
0: But first, roll up your sleeves, Adam, or just cut them off, show those guns. We're gonna review F9. All right, Dom, what's next?
1: No matter how fast you are
2: to be compared
1: to you. No one outruns their past. I
2: am more easy,
1: you trying your best become me. And mine. Just caught up to me. Been a long time down. So we're up against a master thief. Assassin. High performance driver. Who is he?
2: Jacob is Dom's brother. You know, you joke, Josh, but there was a time in my life, my friends, my longtime friends will tell you where I like to rock a muscle shirt. I had no oh, muscles I- to speak <laughs> of, but I loved a good
0: muscle shirt. I hope so. I'd be disappointed if you didn't. I, I had the ones for playing basketball, you know, where the cut went way down, almost to mm. your waist <laughs> for no apparent reason. Well. Yeah. Didn't look too good on me either. We got to find pictures.
2: Maybe you find yourself in the same position we were in a few years back. You're forced to confront the fact that this Fast and Furious franchise is indeed a real thing, that it's not going anywhere, that you're going to have to reckon with it. And maybe you're even ready to ride or die with the series, but you need to get caught up on the journey these characters have been on since 2001's The Fast and the Furious. We could do that for you, or, of course, we could enlist our listeners to do it for us we like to think of our listeners as a family after all don't we josh
0: we do that's true we do hey we ripped that off from fast and furious for patreon didn't we
2: yep here's listener aaron newworth with the most concise franchise plot description twitter can buy an honorable tough guy family man vin diesel's dominic toretto has gone from criminal street racer to leader of an international crew of fun-loving spy racing physics defying geniuses that take down global terrorists using cars and their familial bonds, blood relations or otherwise. Listener Rory Dunn adds this. What started out simply as Point Break with Cars has evolved into a near science fiction action franchise. From dragging a vault through the streets to skydiving with cars to fighting a nuclear sub. Forgot about that one. The (laughs) series is filled with wild set pieces and wilder plot contrivances. Here in F9, Charlize Theron is back, sort of. As Cypher, she's the villain again, though, getting more screen time is who she enlists to take revenge on Dom and his team. That is John Cena playing Jacob, Dominic's younger brother in true soap opera like fashion. We never Mm. knew we had a younger brother. And there's a lot of history there, Josh. Oh, complicated. And I might say tortured history. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit tortured. So we've got Dom, as we said, Vin Diesel. We've got John Cena. We've also got Michelle Rodriguez back as Letty, Tyrese Gibson as Roman, Ludacris as Tej, Jordana Brewster as Mia Toretto, sister to Dom and Jacob, and a few others. I'm sure we'll get to. F9 is directed by Justin Lin, who did Tokyo Drift. That was number three. I should just turn this into a quiz. Josh, give you the title. see if you could name the number. Please don't. Please he don't. Fail miserably, <laughs> Fast and the Furious four, as well as five and six, he did not direct seven, or eight, but now he is back for the ninth installment. Surprisingly, Josh, maybe we just saw this movie together and we would joke maybe about this being a still processing review, but I have so many questions for you and (laughs) I am just going to let you riff on whichever one interests you the most. All right, let's go. You use the phrase Zen chaos memorably to describe a moment in furious seven that achieves quote a state of sublime ridiculousness in which an outrageously impossible action is depicted with uncommon clarity, precision, and control. In F9, a character, I think it might have been Letty, I can't read my scribbles, Josh, suggests there is, in fact, peace in chaos. Mm-hmm. Love that Director line. Director Justin Lin has a screenplay credit, and I can only assume that was a line he conveniently inserted into the script and... As a wink to the viewer, assuring us that what perhaps seems like chaos, this does have to be a record for number of cars destroyed during the filming of any movie. Maybe add up all the wreckage over the history of cinema, and it's still more. (laughs) It's all actually something more profound. So, did you find F9's action clear, precise, and under control enough to reach a zen-like state? Or we could go to this question. In my own Furious 7 review, perhaps riding a high of having revisited the whole series in preparation for our top five, I praise the filmmakers for their ability to create a mythology. This is a universe where each movie has callbacks to previous characters and different moments and storylines, here with appearances by Helen Mirren, Lucas Black, and yes, even Sung Kong as Han, Back from the Dead, and a myriad of other nods to previous entries. I'm curious whether you felt that F9 effectively built on that mythology or does a good portion of it feel like lazy fan service here's a fun one i wonder if you're pondering for your non-film spotting cultural criticism life there is a lot of cross imagery and god talk in f9
0: oh man i i'm here's our plan i just got to interrupt you there Uh if we go to f10 together yep we are both sporting matching cross necklaces okay like dom and jacob do (laughs) i'm in i'm in Cosplay for us.
2: At a crucial moment in the finale, Gibson's Roman even says to throw out all the math and just rely on faith. I should mention, when he says this, he and Ludacris's Tej are driving a Pontiac Fiero in space. There we are. (laughs) Early on in a scene that I don't think was intended to be comical at all, Diesel's Dom tucks his son Brian into bed, telling him God can always be found in his heart, which he follows immediately by saying... I'll always be in your heart, not, and that's where you'll always find me too. No, it's more like Dom is equating himself to God, <laughs> yes. which in the <laughs> F, Ambersan, FU, he might as well be. Could <laughs> F9 be a movie as prayer? And if so, oh boy, what kind? Maybe here's the easiest one. Finally, how do you feel about John Sane As baddie? When compared to other formidable adversaries over the years, from Luke Evans, Owen Shaw, to Jason Statham's Deckard Shaw, to The Rock's Luke Hobbs, who went bald head to bald head with Dom in Fast Five, to Charlize Theron Cipher, who returns to duty in F9 from The Fate and the Furious, though she is mostly relegated to acting within the confines of some kind of glass box. Which brings me to my more important sub-question, did you see a bathroom in that thing? (laughs)
0: Wow. Okay. Well, I'm going to let that one hang there. Okay. Um, And it's all I could think about every time they (laughs) cut to her. I was just looking for the toilet. (laughs) Oh my gosh! Here's where I'm going to start. Not with any of those questions because I think at this point we've had we've had enough fun that we should establish we're legitimately. I'm going to say this of myself. Like we're fans of this franchise to the extent that I like more of these movies than I don't. And I okay. Honestly, enjoy the majority of them. So um, I think we're probably going to have some fun and some laughs here. But to put that out at the beginning is um, I have tiers of these Fast and Furious movies, some some that I really like. None that would come anywhere near, like, say, my top 10 list of the year they came out. But I enjoy for what they are, starting from the first one. um, And I I would probably put Fast and Furious and Furious 7 in that top tier. Um, There's a middle tier there's a bottom tier. And I think I'm just going to kind of put it out there. I think that what we've got here for me, F9 is bottom tier for this franchise. And I say that as someone who has spent a lot of time seriously watching these carefully and finding a lot of things to appreciate about them. Now I'm going to kind of quick race through your questions, which will maybe (laughs) explain why I think this is bottom tier and we can return to the ones you're more interested in talking about, Adam. John Cena, total waste. Um, Anyone who's seen Trainwreck knows that this guy has way more range, can be incredibly funny. I'm not saying that's exactly what they needed to do here. Um, I'm not one of the people who thought The Rock elevated this franchise. I thought he kind of brought maybe a little bit too much irony to it. But certainly John Cena is capable of more than what they give him here, which is an incredibly generic, hulking villain. Um, And that's... What I do want to talk about is the backstory where we see young Jacob and young Dom. that's mm-hmm. despite the fact that this movie puts an incredible amount of work into building out the psychology of this character. Still, when he's on screen, total snooze. bringing back Charlie's Theron, I, I don't think she's actually in a scene with another actor. This is one of those performances I think they got her in a room for one day. You might be uh, right and, and shot everything. and you yeah, know even
2: when she's in dialogue with someone else, you don't actually ever see her no. sharing sharing a frame.
0: No, you don't. So, um, and she's arresting. I mean, Theron is one of those actors who, with her eyes alone, will make you gravitate towards whatever she's doing. But as far as a villain, not compelling at all. Um, The theology of this movie, pretty thin. (laughs) I'm going to say, and this is despite the fact that I did write a piece for one of the sequel. So much for your book sequel. (laughs) Yeah, it's not going to be. It's not going to be hooked on this. I wrote a piece for Think Christian about. Zen chaos and the theological implications of that in the Fast and Furious franchise. I'm not going to, you know, rewrite that and include this one because of what Roman says about faith or science. I mean, it's just, there are maybe three references to it and it's pretty ridiculous. Okay. Good question about the mythology being built here, or is this fan service? One of the things that I genuinely have always appreciated about this movie is I did get hooked into the characters. When Paul Walker, after his death, you know, when they could no longer have Brian be a part of this series, I really genuinely think that was a huge loss. I loved how Walker and Diesel balanced each other out in terms of different depictions of machismo. They grew to have a real rapport with each other, Um, and I liked how the movie did early on, really think about what it means to be part of a family blood or not. This, as you have already alluded to, has gotten inflated to ridiculous proportions here. Mm -hmm. They're just, you know, they're bringing in literal family members to pummel this theme to death. So I think at this point, um, it's not building on that in an interesting way. And I feel bad actually for Sung Kong here returning as Han because Mm -hmm. It's been built up so much in the um, in the trailer and just you know general talk about this movie. They don't give him much to do at all. No, and Kong just looks like, I mean, he just looks exhausted. I, I don't know how else to say it. No, I, and right. they don't really they don't really write that into the story. You easily could have. That's incredibly forced, and the character isn't really given much to do. So, the last thing I think is this. <laughs> I love the line from Letty. There's peace for me in the chaos. There wasn't enough zen for me in the chaos here. I think Justin Lin is maybe the auteur of this franchise. I think he's been responsible for some of the better installments because of the aesthetic element he's brought to it. And I just, I didn't really find a moment here that captured that. There's a lot of chaos, a lot of crashes, as you said. The early race chase in the jungle achieves a little bit of that. But actually, Adam, I thought the most compelling filmmaking was in that flashback to nineteen eighty nine where young Dom and Jacob watched their father race just on a a racing strip. Mm-hmm. That was the most compelling filmmaking to me. um and uh, and I think that's, you know, that's a real fault for this installment that it didn't have that element of Zen chaos for me. Yeah,
2: yeah, we're pretty much in lockstep on this one. and I hate speculating about how other People may respond to this movie because that's not really our job here at all. But I imagine, and this kind of gets back to the question of fan service, I imagine that people who are ride or die for this series on a level beyond what the two of us are, Josh, I imagine they'll be pretty satisfied with this movie. I think it'll probably hit the beats they have come to expect from the Furious Saga. But for me, like you, I watched all of the chaos, and really just saw chaos. There were not any moments that felt to me like they would be contenders for our top five. I still feel pretty good about that top five, and it's four or five years old. Don't need to change that at this point. Maybe the closest came actually near the end. Even though we had seen similar moves, similar choreography, if you will, similar stunts, Already in the film, already a thousand cars had been destroyed at this point. But there is a moment in the big finale where a big vehicle is moving down the street and it's got this supercharged magnet that attracts, of course, all of the the metal as it goes by. And these cars are ramming into it and, and clanking into it in a way that just for a second. For a second, Josh recalled <laughs> Mad Max Fury Road mm. and, and the symphony of chaos I liked where it, it even yeah. felt almost musical because of the sound design in addition to the action and just the, the sheer nuttiness of it all. But that was it. It was fleeting. And I really hadn't felt it up to that point And I didn't feel it again. The mythology thing for me is also interesting because as I said, I was someone who praised that back in Furious 7, and now something about it here in Furious 9 did feel to me mostly like lazy fan service. It also struck me that for better or worse, depending on how you feel about these films, we've gotten to a point where we've gone from point break in cars to eventually, as I've described it, a little bit more like Ocean's Eleven. They're really good Thiefs to then full on Jason Bourne slash James Bond. And I, I alluded to this in our Hobbs and Shaw review and a little bit in Seven when talking about Jason Statham's villain character and the ending of that movie, too, that there was something X-Men about it. There was something something superhero like about where these films are going. And now as I watch this, I feel like I'm just full on now in the MCU. We've got the the Fast and Furious universe and it's here to just be this this mass product on the level of the MCU with all of these fan service moments. We got to wait through the end credits to see what little little Easter egg we're going to get the object they're chasing after. I'm like, oh, they can call it whatever they want. It's the Tesseract. And I know these are motifs that you find in a lot of action movies and we have seen before, surely, in these films. They are always chasing some kind of object. But it felt to me here like Lynn and his co-screenwriter, Daniel Casey, they knew it and they're being blatant about it and they're being so blatant that they kind of try to get away with it by having characters wink at you. They actively discuss this is where the God part could come in, Josh. But it also felt to me more like they were just trying to wink at Marvel movies because they start actively discussing whether maybe they are, in fact, superheroes. Yeah, maybe maybe they're invincible. Maybe they're not just normal people who've pulled all these absurd stunts off over the years. They actually are imbued with some kind of supernatural force. And again, that felt to me like a wink, but not necessarily in an overly clever way. And you're right about the performances too. I mean, if anybody is not on board with Vin Diesel in these movies, I don't see how you can't be after seeing him act opposite John Cena. And I haven't seen enough of (laughs) Cena in other films. I, I too really liked him in Trainwreck, as you know. I haven't seen enough to say that he is someone who to your point really does have that range. Maybe he's just better when he's goofing on himself a little bit and he's in a comedic role. And there are plenty of kind of funny moments in this movie, some intentional, some probably unintentional, but they really force him into a role where I think they ask him to do too much. They ask him to brood too much. They ask him to feel too much. And you know what? He can't do it the way Vin Diesel has now figured out how to do over the course of his career and over the course of these nine movies. Watching him on screen and just seeing how much he actually does convey with that stone face that that slightly hardens and it slightly softens and sometimes you get that slight smile, but that feels like real acting to me and, and has some some truth and some authenticity behind it certainly in comparison to Sena here who just feels out of his depth.
0: Yeah, and when they stare each other down, right. you're just, you know, those are just really rough sequences that seem to go on and on and on. Um and you know, I'm I'm a fan of Diesel's performances as as, you know, self Parodic as maybe they're starting to get a little bit when he his words of wisdom that you know are going to come. You've already quoted one line. There are others in this film. Um, But he still has a certain – there's a certain genuine feeling behind – this is what it is. He believes in what he's saying. He, he totally believes in it as a character and you think probably as an actor too, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's something that is appealing about that authenticity. I think that goes back to my, you know, slight hesitation when the series started to embrace irony with the arrival of The Rock, um, Dwayne Johnson, and really going in that direction. It kind of undercut, you know, yes, it could mean that the first film strayed into camp here and there because it was taking itself so seriously, mm-hmm. um, but it's one of the things that I liked about it. and. Cena is not able to do that, as Diesel is, where he's just he's just projecting these qualities. But as you said, it's not fair because of how much the movie is asking of him, because of this backstory it has weighed down yes. his character with. Which I think is actually potentially really interesting. Let, let me throw this out there, Adam. You said how you know you think this will hit all the beats for hardcore fans, and I think you're right about that. I think um, you know from from the action sequences to the characters, um, to the lines that they're waiting for, it will do that, uh, and and that's what they're buying their tickets for. That's why this movie was made. Here's the movie that could have been made that I would have really <laughs> had wanted to sit with. I would have loved to have just stayed in 1989 with Vinnie Bennett as young Dom. Really good. So good. Yeah. Here's Debbie. Debbie was at the screening, sat with us, Adam. Here's here's her takeaway. Leans over to me at one point in a, you know, a voice a little breathier than I would have liked and said, More young Dom. <laughs> I mean, Bennett right. is like he, he's he's still and, you know, big and a quiet presence like Diesel is, but somehow very charismatic. Um, and I wasn't familiar with him before. And you have Finn Cole playing Jacob, the younger Jacob. And I'm not saying the scenes where we get with those two are good because I never quite understood, and I'm not going to spoil it, how what happens between the two of them leads Jacob to become this, you know, world dominating villain that he yeah. is. That's a little bit of a leap. The movie never quite. Well, he was quite... in his brother's shadow, Josh. What are you talking about? Ex- that... I mean, right. That's not going to do it, <laughs> that, right? And That leads all of us to go on to become of super course. spies who do terrible things. What do you of mean? Of course it does. But this is in defense of Cena too. It's like, he can't make that, you can't expect John Cena to make that, connection work, right? But I do think what we learn about young Dom, young Jacob, and their relationship with their father, who's a race car driver, I think that's a really interesting story. Mm-hmm. I would have been, you know, give me Dom the early years starring Vinnie <laughs> Bennett. I'd yeah. be the only one in the theater well, Debbie clearly would be there with me, but I I'd be really happy with that. I think that was the filmmaking was rich there. Lynn uses a different, you know, film stock, possibly. It has a grainier feel, yeah. even though it makes me feel incredibly old, old to think about 1989 needing needing different film stock. Um, but I already talked about the gritty car racing sequences in those flashbacks and that charismatic stillness from Bennett. I mean, I think you've got yourself a good movie there in the spirit of the original The Fast and the Furious. It's not the movie they're ever going to make, at least not yet when they still know if they can get this familiar crew back together, they'll yeah. make the big money.
2: Okay, so this is this is yet another Fast and Furious Presents, Young Dom. There you go. That's the movie we need. Give it to me. <laughs> we'll be in line for that. You know they couldn't make that movie, Josh, because then, going back to 1989, I think they say the year is, we, we couldn't get, even in the ridiculous Fast and Furious universe. We couldn't get a Pontiac Fierro in space. No. We got to talk about that, don't we? And that's that's all they want. Do we have to talk about it? I don't know if there's more to say, but, you know, watching this one too, (laughs) I was struck by the fact that one of the hallmarks of this series, especially over the past four to five films, that notion of family, but also ramping up the craziness of the action. I was always kind of impressed with how earnestly absurd it is and now i realize it's actually more accurate to call it absurdly earnest Hmm. right that's that's what these films really are and the dialogue really does lean into that especially with all of those aphorisms and when it isn't spouting those cheesy aphorisms it's mostly either kind of matter of fact redundant utterings that that truly don't add anything or they're actually saying things like like I love that they they wrote this into the script and and had people say it multiple times they actually described the place they're in as Mr. Nobody's secret hideout like <laughs> like this whole thing is being made by and for 12 year old kids and, and maybe it is you know and I I've liked through much of this saga Tyrese and yet here in this film it feels more and more like they're kind of just giving him room to improv, which I'm mm. going to say isn't isn't necessarily a good thing. And here's the other question. I, I filled this so far with questions, and that was there for the setup, but it was also my way of getting around the fact that I wasn't sure if I had answers to those questions. I'm going to throw another one out. And yes, I will note the irony of me asking this when we've spent now a good chunk of time criticizing this movie. But are... The Fast and Furious movies at this point, and I know this is probably well-trodden territory, but I don't think we've talked about it. Are they not so much critic-proof? Because who cares? And of course, the reviews aren't really affecting the box office at this point, I imagine. But are they, are they critique-proof? Because you can't really criticize them for being ridiculous. As we've said, that 1970s Dodge Charger left the garage a long time ago. You can't really begrudge... The movies, their sentimentality, that seems, as I said, as indelible to these movies now as that over-the-top action. And then, really, we have poked holes in some of the performances, but I'm just wondering on what grounds could one suggest that these movies would work better or work at all without Vin Diesel, as if he was he was a problem and, and his abilities as an actor. And the reason I ask that, Josh, is not that, wow, that... That makes it so hard on us poor critics that they make these movies. They construct these movies in this way. The more I've sat with the movie, it just makes it all feel a little bit more like what it is. This shouldn't be a revelation, but it makes it all feel a little more like a product. Meaning it's just designed to make you feel the exact same way it made you feel every time you've enjoyed the product before. It's it's all a little bit calculated or too calculated. It's all a little bit too cold, no matter how many times we see Vin and little Brian with his adorable curls bathed in a beautiful yellow glow. And and even at one point, and I swear this is not a larger point about product placement, because that's just another fact of movies as well. But there was a point when I turned to you in the movie where someone spouts one of those cheesy aphorisms and says, yeah, you know, we won't figure that all out, but let's just enjoy the moment. And, and I was waiting for someone to say with our Corona extras and clink them together, you know, (laughs) because it, it because they actually do, but, but they actually do. And it, it just felt like it. So much of this movie felt like that. You know, our producer, Sam didn't love in the Heights and didn't like it as much as we both did. You may have seen this uh, tweet he responded to last week where someone pointed out that it all felt a little bit like a, a Target commercial. I'm going to be honest, I didn't get that criticism, maybe because I don't know what a Target commercial really is supposed to feel like. I mean, I know I've seen a Target commercial before, but it's not something I immediately assign certain conventions to. But I've seen a lot of beer commercials, and there is, there is a beer commercial aspect To this film that, you know, by the end of it, it sounds like we're being pretty hard on it. It's not like it's not entertaining. This kind of gets back to the question that prompted all of this and how it's kind of critique proof. It's pretty still fun to watch. And yet, the more you think about it, the more you don't tear it apart because of its stupidity, the more you just kind of feel like it leaves you wanting a little bit more. Like it is too much of a manufactured product that's being handed to us, Josh.
0: Yeah. I think you answer that by, you know, answering it as the fan at whatever level you are. And we've already established we're not hardcore fans. So the answer might be differently for them, but I think even as a fan of this series, it's the, it's maybe not the least fun. I'll have to go back and redo my fast and furious rankings on letterbox. Cause yes, I have spent time doing that in my life, but it's, the fun just wasn't there for me, not to laugh at, but, you know, maybe to chuckle slightly alongside. Um, and and this movie doesn't have those elements. I think your MCU analogy is helpful here, too, because those are absolutely products. Uh, they have a relationship with their—I would say maybe you and I are both— more fans in general of the MCU films Mm -hmm. than we are of these films. Does that sound right to you? I would say so. Yeah. Okay. So, so maybe we're a little bit closer to the fandom when it comes to that franchise, but I don't think we're anywhere near the MCU obsessives. Um, And it's interesting to think about those two side by side, because I think the MCU obsessives are also willing to critique each film as it comes out, and ask questions about how does it relate to the other films? Would these characters really do this? Um, what they make of the relationships among the characters? I don't know if you have that level of engagement with the Fast and Furious fan base, or if it's you know it's more thrill based. And that's not to say you know that this series doesn't spend enough time on its characters, because I think it does. I think that's one of its good qualities. And they may push that a little far. Or the problem here is that. They're pushing it because it's it's part of the recipe, rather than that it's something that feels natural, or you know is just organically part of the relationships of the actors. Mm-hmm. I just I'm gonna I really think you know the series took a big hit when it lost Paul Walker, um, you know bigger than maybe it realizes. I, I mean there are how many references to him. In this movie, Adam, it's getting a little strange. Almost like there are three references, I think at least, to Brian um, to kind of explain where he is, mm-hmm. and, and I wonder what that says about you know just how even the the filmmakers think about this franchise because it would be so much easier to say you know obviously in the in this narratives he has happened in walker's real life he there was a car accident or something you know and just kind of leave him behind and they can't and i wonder if i wonder if that's kind of evidence of what they want to bring back to this series which is a genuine element of human connection that they know was crucial to what made it what makes it be at its best And by just referencing it here a couple times, to me, it just made F9 seem more and more hollow. But Mm -hmm. real quickly, we got to go back to Cars in Space. Okay. (laughs) Because it was maybe my favorite laugh. And one was when you notice they actually either CGI or something, like took the time to put Frost... On the window pane and kind of give you that, like, I don't know, is it an Apollo 13 feel or so? Yeah. It's like, what why bother? But the best thing about it is when we were this is a parallel sequence, right? And we won't yeah. give too much away about cars in space, but um, we're on the earth for some of the action sequence and you get lost in it, right? There's a lot going on. Um, and then all of a sudden there will be a hard cut. And we're in space looking through the windshield of this floating (laughs) car. Yeah. And that was just the funniest thing to me. I don't know how you go from... Car chase on Earth to car floating in space, right? But that choice made it pretty comical to me. So I, yeah. I just, I guess, like a lot has been made of that sequence, and that kind of felt like it was almost treated like an afterthought too. You know, like, like a, a little bit like an obligatory gag. They knew people have been joking about this for years. So, oh yeah, what got are we gonna put, do next? Put cars got, in space? <laughs> totally. And so yeah. we've got to put a car in space, but they didn't really do. It, it's kind of a deflating sequence. Like yeah, they don't, it is Nothing really that cool happens. You're right, though, that
2: I think it got a laugh out of me each time we cut back to it. Each time. That's what they were going for or not. (laughs) I'm not sure, but it definitely got a laugh out of me. F9 is currently playing in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail. You just have to do it in your best Dominic Toretto voice. 312-264-0744.
0: So no, I'm afraid F9 didn't give me a top five Fast and Furious moment either. So my list is still pure. We'll revisit that next and share the results of our car movie poll. Stay with us.
2: Was an Avenger. I made mistakes. And a lot of enemies. We go from one Marvel movie, essentially, Josh, to another, right? It's been two long years between actual Marvel films. I'm not sure how we've been coping, but now we have Black Widow. It is the first MCU movie since Spider-Man Far From Home in 2019. You heard the trailer there for Black Widow. It opens on July 9th. Next week, we are on vacation. Mm. But when we return, we do plan to have a review of Black Widow.
0: Yeah. As time machines work, Adam, actually, I think in like 12 hours, we'll both be on vacation. So yes. right, right around the corner here. But yeah, Black Widow, I don't know. I'll be interested to see how much attention this one gets because kind of a secondary character, um, Scarlett Johansson, of course, we're familiar with as Black Widow, but uh, this one also stars Florence Pugh. Obviously, that's a pull for both of us. Rachel yes. Weiss in it. Directed by Kate Shortland, a filmmaker I'm not familiar with, Adam, but made 2012's Lore, I believe, an Australian filmmaker. So we'll see what she brings to the table as well. I saw Lore,
2: definitely not... The type of film that you think would be a springboard for the MCU, just as you wouldn't maybe when contemplating Chloe Zhao's work. But we're all excited for Eternals and we're excited for Black Widow to see what Kate Shortland does with the material. And yes, I have always enjoyed Scarlett Johansson's performance as that character. And I have missed Florence Pugh in my movie life since Little Women in that year where I felt like she had three or four movies come out and she was very good in all of those. So we will talk about black widow. And then we're also planning right now to talk about a movie that came up in our summer movie preview. One of my top five movie questions of the summer was about Steven Soderbergh's new film, which is called no sudden move returning to crime movies, which he's done at multiple points in his career. Also returning to crime and Detroit, which of course he did in out of sight. No sudden move stars Don Cheadle, Benicio del Toro, Ray Liotta, John Hamm, Amy Simitz, Bill Duke, who we both enjoyed in Car Wash, part of our Seven from 76 series. He was also in Soderbergh's High Flying Bird and The Limey. He is part of the cast as well. That's one that comes to HBO Max on July 1st. So, two reviews, two movies. I think we're both pretty curious about, Josh.
0: Yeah, no sudden move. Didn't even know about until I think we looked at our summer movie preview. Can't wait for that one. Quick note about the happenings on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. It's part one of their In the Heights West Side Story pairing. Adam, just my Father's Day kind of gift to myself. They asked, what do you want to do on Father's Day? So I said, well, let's all go see In the Heights. I had already seen it with you for the show. So we did that. And I got to say, I think I liked it maybe to sam's chagrin a little bit more even Mm. this second time around give it to him well i just i think maybe it has to do with one of the complaints i had there was just so much going on the first time it was a little overwhelming Mm -hmm. um but but this time i liked it though i did see it with my older daughter who i was telling you earlier you know has listened to the broadway soundtrack and afterwards it was a lot of even though she liked it, point-by-point point comparison of what they had changed down to the notes that they took out of certain songs right. and how that bothered her. So I can't wait to hear what the Next Picture Show folks have to say about In the Heights and, of course, classic West Side Story.
2: The Next Picture Show is hosted by Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts and you can learn more at Next Picture Show. Net. One way you can support our show is to join the film spotting family over on Patreon. You get ad free episodes, you get monthly bonus episodes. And that means if you're a regular listener who is not going to get a new podcast next week when we're off, you still could get a new show if you were a family member because it's going to be bonus episode time and you'll hear us wrestle with our 1970s coming of age blind spotting. Review of Nicholas rogues walkabout listener choice. They get to vote. We gave them three options that were all kind of inspired by Luca coming of age movies, but all three blind spots for us, all three 1970s movies, as we are, Josh, trying to do our homework in advance of next year's seventies film spotting madness.
0: Yeah, we did kind of plan that. Well, I didn't think about that, but there's going to be a gap in shows here. But if you're a member of the film spotting family on Patreon, we'll just keep sending them to you
2: that's right and speaking of Soderbergh and Oceans 11 and Oceans 12 we've got Todd's 12 in honor of our quizmaster Thomas Todd it's our 12th installment of trivia spotting some really good guests lined up and it's going to be Friday July 9th 7 p.m central time start all of the player tickets already sold out but if you're a family member and you want to be a spectator which basically gives you All the same opportunities as a player, you just don't get to compete. You are there to kind of watch, participate as much as you want, but you don't have to answer the questions. You're not on a team. If you want to be a spectator, tickets are still available. Of course, you can become a member of the Film Spotting family, which gives you access to those tickets. And now annual memberships are available. That gives you a 10% discount. So you basically get over a month free if you sign up for one of those annual memberships, patreon.com slash film
0: question for you, Adam, based on my recent performances, is it possible I can move over to become a spectator?
2: <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you could probably Josh, I'm still going to be a player though. I have had back to back second place finishes. So, oh, you I'm think read- you're on a roll, huh? I'm on a roll. Okay. Now, it wasn't because <laughs> of me mind you so I hope I get a good draw this time as I have the last two times but you know it's all random Josh we'll see how it goes
1: there's a hundred thousand streets in this city you don't need to know the route you give me a
2: time and a place I give you a five minute window anything
0: happens in that five minutes and I'm yours no matter what Anything happens a minute either side of that, and you're on your own.
1: Do you understand?
2: If Ryan Gosling's five-minute offer still stands, we might just have enough for a drive sequel. It's time for some poll results. A couple weeks back, looking ahead to our review of F9, we asked you what ensemble car movie, so far without a sequel, should reunite the original cast for a sequel. Complicating things a little bit, the fact that not all the characters in the movies we gave her options actually survived the movie technicality, so reuniting the original cast for a sequel might require some creativity. Yes, you could employ a dream sequence, a flashback, or whatever you choose. With that all in mind, Josh, the options we gave were Edgar Wright's Baby Driver, Tony Scott's Days of Thunder, Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof, Drive, Two Thousands Gone in 60 Seconds, the Wachowski sister's speed racer, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. I don't know why we didn't say Adam McKay's Talladega Nights, The Ballad <laughs> of Ricky Bobby. Didn't he direct that?
0: Or, he did. I, I don't know if he likes to be known that way as much maybe.
2: anymore. But He's very serious now. Or if you didn't like any of those options, you could go with other and write in a candidate. Josh, how did it come out?
0: So 4% voted other, perhaps in the feedback, we'll hear about some of those choices. Days of Thunder here, second to last place, 8%. Gone in 60 seconds with 9%. I'm disappointed in that. Who doesn't want to see Cage and Jolie back together again? Tarantino's Death Proof received 11% of the vote. Speed Racer got 12%. Talladega Nights, 16%. Baby Driver, 17%. So pretty tight here, but the winner is Drive with 22% of the vote.
2: And I know we mentioned this on a previous show, but that low showing for Days of Thunder, despite that cast, including Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, Robert Duvall, John C. Riley, Michael Rooker, who also makes an appearance in F9, Carrie Elwes, Margo Martindale, we can we can push to the side Randy Quaid. But that's a pretty, pretty good ensemble there in Days of Thunder. I'm surprised maybe Josh didn't do a little better. But then again, we don't have many we don't have many 80s kids in our audience. I don't think, and that movie technically was a 90 movie, but, you know, just right there on the verge.
0: It feels 80s, and I don't know why you have to come for Randy Quaid like that. I mean, that was a little rude, Adam.
2: Well, I mean, have you followed him as a person in the world over the past couple of years?
0: I don't know why I would do that. Okay, well,
2: you know what? (laughs) Remain in your ignorant state, Josh. Do not not Google it, okay? (laughs) That's my advice to you. Josh Youngerman wrote in, funny story, Timothy Oliphant who stole scenes in Gone in 60 Seconds, was the studio's first choice to play Dom Toretto in The Fast and the Furious. No. Imagine Oliphant in that role for a second. Let's just, I can't. Let's, just, let's take a second.
0: No, can't do it. It's not It's not working for me. I, I don't think Fast and Furious would be where it is today if not for Vin Diesel. And I say I that as a Timothy Oliphant fan, super fan. I mean- as long as I'm, I'm outing Debbie for her screen crushes. Have I ever told you the comment she made about the Mandalorian? Mm-hmm. I, I, you didn't watch Mandalorian, so you may not no. even be aware that Timothy Oliphant was in that. But he basically shows up first of all with like a Boba Fett style Mandalorian helmet. You don't really know it's him. She says, "Oh, I know who that is." I said, "What?" <laughs> I said, "Why?" The voice? No, the hips. Wow. I mean, she's watching wow. closely, Adam. Very closely. <laughs> so closely. All right, we heard from Michelle Foy as well. She's in Ottawa, Ontario. My favorite movie of the bunch is Drive, but dudes, that movie ended perfectly. Why would you want to ruin it with a sequel, prequel, reheat, reboot, etc.? Another Death Proof, on the other hand, hell yeah. Let's ride that thing ten times.
2: Okay. I hear you, Michelle. Scott G. says, My vote is for Death Proof, with or without Tarantino behind the scenes. It would be a treat to catch up with the women who made it out of the first film with skins and limbs intact. How about this idea for a sequel? Aspiring actress-turned-director Lee, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, stunt-driver-turned-stunt-coordinator Kim, Tracy Thomas, stuntwoman-extraordinaire-turned-action-star Zoe Bell, and of course, Abernathy Rosario Dawson, who left behind her makeup-slash-hairstylist career after writing a best-selling book about their encounter with the infamous stuntman Mike, they reunite for a new production in which Zoe Bell's heroic character squares off with a villain, played by Winstead's Lee— Pulling double duty, Kenneth Branagh style, the women find themselves tangling with a dangerous real life threat, stuntman Bob, mad as hell about the loss of his brother. Now, now it sounds like Death Proof meets a Fast and Furious movie.
0: (laughs) Brothers abound. Yes, yes. Man, Scott's got the whole treatment there. I love it. Here's Jeremy Webner Berman. I want ninety minutes of Ansel Elgort and Lily James listening to music in a car with a five-minute break when they stop to get gas and snacks. That's the movie I want. Okay. Andy Bucati in
2: KC. If I remember correctly, Talladega Nights won the Oscar. For what? Best movie ever made. That got me, Andy. Well done. <laughs> and if that's not enough to warrant a sequel, reuniting the best cast of the bunch, Will Ferrell, John C. Riley, Sasha Baron Cohn, and Amy Adams
0: should be. Oh, I, I like living in your world, Andy. Here's Ben Hayworth. My vote is a no brainer. Speed Racer. What the Wachowskis did in terms of revolutionizing digital cinema to create a non stop visual feast has still yet to be recaptured. The amount of care and love that went into that film is unmistakable. And what results is a wholesome collection of beautiful noise and color that would be a welcome reprieve in an era where blockbusters are only getting more gray and dull and, quote, realistic. Not to mention a brilliant score by Michael Giacano and some of the best nonlinear editing in movie history. Let's bring spectacle and joy back to the multiplex.
2: Man, the love for Speed Racer that exists now, 10 yeah. years, 13 years after its release, it, it remains a mystery to me. Now, in fairness, I haven't watched it since that time, but I'm mystified.
0: Yeah, I got I really want to do a revisit to get on board as other people are. I noticed Ben doesn't say much about the cast though, which was kind of our question. I Was that Emil Hirsch, right? Yeah. Yep. And then there's a monkey or is it Randy <laughs> Randy Quaid? <laughs> it I, might be. Okay, one of the okay. two. Okay. Timothy Stevens
2: says I'm going with Gone in 60 seconds. It was dumb, it was bad, but it was the right kind of dumb bad that you can build a sequel off of and a strong enough cast that you might actually be able to
0: do something better in the sequel. Okay. Dan Fleming in Comics, British Columbia. I propose a Gone in 60 Seconds crossover with the Fast and the Furious. Dom and his team bring in Cage, Jolie, and Rabisi as the B-team to hustle cars for their next heist. Fast and Furious presents Two Gone in Two Seconds.
2: <laughs> I'm in. I still haven't actually seen Gone in 60 Seconds, but watching Vin Diesel face off against Nicolas Cage, having just watched him face-off against John Cena. I really would love to see that, that stillness of Diesel up against the manic energy of Nicolas Cage. I'd buy a ticket to that.
0: I mean, Cage is no one's B team. So no. you know you're going to get sparks. And this is not going to shock you, Adam. Gone in 60 seconds, 2,000. Top 10 gave for it. you? I it. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I wish I could be that on brand. No, just
2: three out of four stars. Okay, just three. Betsy says, now, this is great. It's cheeky. I know, but hear me out. Angela Robinson's 2005 Herbie Fully Loaded has an amazing cast. Once we get past Lindsay Lohan, Justin Long, and Jill Ritchie, Kid Rock's little sister, who is actually pretty good, you have Michael Keaton, Jimmy Simpson, Matt Dillon, Cheryl Hines, and Thomas Lennon. Plenty of comedy chops worthy of a beefier sequel. Herbie Fully Reloaded. Bring it
0: back, Betsy says. Wow. I'm just, I'm trying to process that cast, and the fact that Kid Rock's little sister apparently is an actress. That's new to me. Okay. Jake Scubish here. Okay, fine. It's technically a bus movie, but it's definitely speed. We ignore the sequel. Bring back Keanu, crank up the miles per hour, and do it all again.
2: Okay, so Jake going off on his own there, going rogue. Sam would, of course, not allow that because we did get a sequel. But, you know, Jake saying, let's pretend it didn't exist. That's fine. There are no rules here to film spotting poll questions dan henry closes us out he says it's a mad 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 world jonathan winters spencer tracy milton burrell ethel merman buddy hackett mickey rooney phil silvers dick sean sid caesar but maybe i misunderstood the part about dead cast members
0: mm. well i mean unless hologram technology yeah
2: well gets that far it's then coming, we could do it right thanks to everyone who voted in the poll and who left comments it's time for a new poll in two weeks We'll be getting the sequel, or call it a reboot, call it a reheat if you choose, that nobody asked for except so many 90s kids that listen to Film Spotting, I think. Space Jam, A New Legacy. Mm. I'm on the record. I haven't seen the original. I have no plans to see the new one. But as listeners have picked up, especially in recent weeks, Josh, you are a fan of the association, as they say. That's true, and <laughs> they do <laughs> in two weeks, we won't just be getting a LeBron James starring Space Jam. We will also, my notes tell me, likely be in the midst of the NBA finals. Now, I was going to ask you to fill us in on what's happening in all things basketball and space jam, But you can only fill me in on Space Jam. You know I know what's happening in all things basketball. We yeah. spent a lovely night out Saturday with our wives, had a really wonderful dinner, had some good drinks. Walk back to your place and our nightcap was watching game seven,
0: Bucks Nets. Overtime. 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 Game time. seven. I mean, just thrilling. I don't know if Sarah and Debbie would describe it that way. But, Maybe not. But yeah. Um, well, the thing I can tell you, which obviously you know, but it's a it's a finals that's gonna be without LeBron James. He's been out for a while now. So yeah, I'm pulling for the Bucks. Um, since the Bulls are um, yeah, we'll just Stop talking about the Bulls. So I'm pulling for the Bucks, but I'm not too confident they haven't made the strongest showing. Um, but I just still think they're maybe capable of, of winning it all. So by the time this show comes out, that may look like a dire, a very dire hope. We'll see here.
2: <laughs> all this basketball talk does set up a very simple question, though this is a tough one. Even for someone like me who doesn't consider himself a huge basketball fan, we're asking you simply, what is the best? basketball movie and maybe what complicates it is inevitably when we ask you anything about the best you have to consider what best means and is there such a thing as the best or your favorite we're Mm. giving you these options josh
0: spike lee's he got game Soderbergh's high-flying bird just like a year or two ago i think we got that one steve james documentary hoop dreams the classic hoosiers Gina Prince-Bythewood's Love and Basketball, Space Jam, we'll just throw that one in there for the 90s kids, and then White Men Can't Jump, directed by Ron Shelton. In the other category, you might go for Uncut Gems, another recent film, Celtic Pride, Teen Wolf, Glory (laughs) Road, Coach Carter. Sure. I mean, some not-so-classics maybe in that bunch, but here's another wrinkle with this though, Adam. I think when you're talking sports movies, it's harder for fans of that sport. So, for example, a baseball movie, I don't care about the baseball. I mean, I, you know, I want to believe the baseball, yeah. but but I want it to be a good movie, right? If it's basketball, I'm going to be paying a little more attention to the actual representation mm-hmm. of the sport. So, my instinct here is to go, Hoop Dreams. It's the cl- right. clearly the best film on this list, by yeah. far. It's about basketball, but as we know from Steve James' movies, about so much else, socioeconomic elements, racial elements. So I'm trying to remember how much like basketball, basketball stuff is in He Got Game, because that's my other option for me. And knowing Spike Lee, huge Knicks fan, he knows his basketball. It's been so long since I've seen He Got Game. I'm thinking that might have that element as well, Mm -hmm. which is why I'm kind of torn between those two.
2: Okay. Well, I mean, Denzel can ball. And Ray Allen obviously can ball. So I right? feel like, I feel like the, the basketball authenticity factor in He Got Game has to be fairly high. And I'm just going to go back real quick to the other. You kind of went by it. I think the inclusion here of Uncut Gems is... I did
0: think about that one.
2: It's a really tricky one, right? Because I'm not sure any of us immediately think of it as a quote-unquote basketball movie. Not in the same way you think of Hoosiers, for example, as a basketball movie, but... Maybe that's a little bit of recency bias. It's one we've just all seen a little bit too recently. And also, while it's a movie that in some ways isn't really obviously about basketball, basketball is such a fundamental part of that movie, including the fact that it stars or co-stars Kevin Garnett. And right. he's, he's quite good in the movie. So I think you could make a case for it. We did decide, myself and Sam, that it felt better as an other option here. But I'll be curious to see if that's one a lot of people write in. Your instincts are the same as mine in terms of it being a debate between Spike Lee's He Got Game, a movie I love, and Steve James' Hoop Dreams, a movie I also love. But I'm going to be honest and say that especially when you factor in the favorite
0: part of this. Don't say it.
2: Josh, there's only one movie on this list. And I should admit, I haven't seen Love and Basketball. Want to see Love and Basketball. Yeah, me too. There is only one movie on this list that I can quote and still quote <laughs> oh, no. from in my everyday life and have seen probably 10 to 20 times. And that's Ron Shelton's White Men Can't Jump.
0: Oh, thank you. I thought you were going to go Hoosiers.
2: <laughs> no, I mean, I think Hoosiers is fine. Don't get yeah, me wrong. It is. In fact, it I, think, is. I think Gene Hackman's pretty great in it, of course. Yeah, really going out on a limb there. But no, I, I really, I have a soft spot in my Harvard for White Men Can't Jump. My college roommates and I used to watch it all the time. It was just one of our go-to movies. But here's... Here's where I am going to kick it out. Not just because I'm kind of setting aside the favorite part. I'm going to go back to what you said about the basketball. And although Woody Harrelson's pretty darn good in it, Wesley Snipes is a terrible basketball player. And even I can see that. And for someone who's supposed to be this amazing street hustler, it it suffers because Mm -hmm. of Wesley Snipes. So because of the basketball factor, I'm going to kick out white men can't jump. It's between Spike and Steve. (sighs) I'm going to go Hoop Dreams.
0: Yeah, you can't go
2: wrong. Conventional choice, probably a little boring, but I think Hoop Dreams is the
0: answer. One of the all-time great docs, so can't go wrong there.
2: You can vote now in that poll and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. From basketball to street racing, it's time for our top five fast and furious moments. A little background. Back in early 2015, Furious 7 showed up as one of the big early releases on the movie calendar. We were just coming off, Josh, prestige Oscar season. We had an appetite for something a little less heady. We talked ourselves into plowing through the Fast and Furious franchise in time for the April release of Furious 7. So we had both seen a few of the movies. We had not seen all previous six installments. We did that homework, even, I'm pretty sure, rewatching the ones we had seen In prep for Furious 7, and we did this top five, our top five Fast and Furious moments. Before we get into that, how was that six years ago?
0: Oh, right? I mean, the Fast and Furious happens to warp time. It's even got like the chronology of the franchise itself is all... Messed up in ways that I still have trouble remembering, but I when I think back on this list, Adam, I am just so proud, and I don't think we could do it today. I don't think we have the stamina, right Look at that timeline. I know we how many movies we packed in. I remember watching at home like back to back fast and furious movies. And I don't you know, I, we really committed. We, we should be proud indeed. of that.
2: Yeah, I am proud. And we're going to keep milking this. Every time a new Fast and Furious movie comes out, we'll probably just replay this, especially if they're not going to give us any better moments to consider, which it does seem like they didn't do for us with F9. But let's focus on the positive, Josh. Let's focus on the moments we love from the saga. Here are our top five Fast and Furious moments. Enjoy. the Rio's nicest time
0: of year. Cops are getting on.
2: And I guess we're doing our job.
1: I'm a walking target. I don't want you around when they catch up to me. Ride or die, I remember?
2: Dom, how long have we been doing this?
1: And now, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it's too dangerous? Come on.
2: We are sharing our top five Fast and Furious moments. Looking over all seven films of the franchise so far, what five scenes, sequences, or maybe just those little moments themselves stood out the most for us as the most memorable? Josh, I am dying to hear (laughs) your five scenes.
0: Yeah, the reason I thought moments would be perfect is because having only seen the first film even, I could tell that these were pictures that had those little flickers. There were going to be things maybe we laughed about, things that just weren't the sort of films we're into, but there were going to be flickers where everything came together and probably mostly action scenes, racing scenes, but also that sort of sublime ridiculousness that I talked about when we were reviewing Furious 7. And there's actually a comment here from a very minor character in Tokyo Drift that I think set me up for how I wanted to think about this list. It's Natalie Kelly. She's really one of the poor female parts in the franchise. Mm-hmm. But she does describe at one point in this monologue the nighttime drive she'd take up in the mountain roads. And she just says at some point, it's just the moment. And that's right. That was right for me. I mean, th- this franchise has been a collection of just these really nice moments. So that's what I've selected here. My number five does come from Tokyo Drift, even though I didn't rank it all that highly, but it has this spectacular vehicular mating ritual.
1: Hmm.
0: Totally throwaway moment, yeah. but I love what director Justin Lin does here. This is the film that he came on to the franchise with. It's the third film, and he really upped its game in terms of form, I think. He has this kinetic camera. He employs a judicious use of slow motion here and there. It just has this overall lucidity that does go on to be one of the hallmarks of the franchise. So this is where Lucas Black and Sung Kang, they're the Paul Walker Vin Diesel stand-ins in this <laughs> Yeah, he plays Han version. throughout the franchise. He does, yeah. We don't see Lucas continue. Black again except briefly. Very his, uh, briefly and a little bit older, Yes, we does. all are. <laughs> well, here they're driving around Tokyo and they notice these two women sitting at a stoplight in their own souped-up race car. So the men's car proceeds to squeal in this circle and it just continues like I don't know how many circles they do around the women's car number of turns until the women smile and hold out this sheet of paper with their phone numbers the guys they straighten their car out race by in a blur and just grab the paper as they pass. And meanwhile, Lynn's camera is a part of this as well because it gets this overhead shot where it too is spinning in a circle. So it's silly, it's sublime, and it's, it's sort of the franchise's version of a meet-cute. This is how you yeah. meet cute in the Fast and Furious world. <laughs> it is. And it does
2: tie back to something Lucas Black's character asks earlier about, well, what do you race for then if it's not for other cars? And He gives you the answer there, Han does, with that mating ritual. My number five, Josh, comes from your favorite installment in the series Fast and Furious, which is the fourth, if you need a little bit of help distinguishing them. And I liked that ride or die dialogue we came in with here with Rodriguez and with Vin Diesel because it isn't all about, we talked about this a lot with Furious 7, those big bombastic action moments. It is sometimes about... Believe it or not, the dialogue and the interplay between characters and the emotion. And there is a dialogue scene between Brian and Mia Toretto, Jordana Brewster, who, of course, is the sister. Of Vin Diesel's Dom. And they had a relationship going back to one, she felt betrayed. They finally come together in a sequence here in four, where they come together and get to finally kind of confront each other about their past and maybe their future. And I like this scene a lot. I'm calling it the lying to yourself scene. I like it for two reasons, and I picked it for two reasons. One is it was for me the first profound bit of dialogue in the series that didn't strike me as totally cornball. I actually think that there are a couple really good dialogue scenes delivered really well by Sung Kang, who plays Han, in Tokyo Drift, but I watched Tokyo Drift at the very end. I thought I'd already seen it, and so I wasn't necessarily going to revisit it, but after seeing Seven, I wanted to go back and finally see it, I'm glad I did, because it turns out I'd never seen the whole film. But he has a couple good lines, but through the first film and certainly the second film, None of the scenes where anybody ever tried to be serious or heavy about anything worked for me, not even in your beloved Fast and Furious one. Oh, we'll get Sorry. to that in my
0: next. Pick.
2: Oh, oh, gosh. <laughs> I had a feeling we would. But in this scene, both actors are performing with conviction, just earnest enough, not overselling it at all. And this conflict is the other key theme of the franchise for me beyond family. What do you stand for? Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? Part of what makes Dom so compelling as a hero is that he doesn't worry about those labels. He's established his own code, he lives his life, he has his own sense of right and wrong. Brian has no idea. And that's partly why he's drawn so much to Dom's character and his clarity. Mia nails him on it in this
1: scene. No idea. I lied to Dom, I lied to everybody. That's why I do best, that's why the feds recruited me. Maybe you're lying to yourself. Maybe you're not the good guy pretending to be a bad guy. Maybe you're the bad guy pretending to be the good guy. You ever think about that?
2: Every day. It's not a coincidence that this whole series, then, for me, really takes off once Brian figures out the answer to Mia's
0: challenge, which happens at the end of this movie. Which is exactly where we'll get to later in my list. Yeah, see, for me... My number four is going to be one of those moments that you probably did bristle at. It's the I live my life a quarter mile at a time scene in the Fast and the Furious. So hokey. I'm sorry, but you don't you don't get to apologize for the corniness later in the series when it's right there from the start. And it's the same essence, and I feel like it's being delivered with the same sincerity on the part of the two actors. And I appreciate that there isn't any sort of ironic level going on here. Sure, they grow into their parts a little bit better as the series goes on. That is inevitable, Paul Walker especially. But this scene here... When I first saw the movie, I sat up and thought, okay, this is a movie that maybe is being thought of by the studio and marketers as something for 14-year-old boys. But you know what? The people involved are taking it seriously, and that's coming through on the screen. So I do unironically appreciate this bro bonding that goes on, especially right here. This does take place in Dom's garage, it's the first time we get a sense of who he might be beyond this suspicious street racer. We're not sure if he's a criminal, how much of a criminal he is. We get a little bit behind that layer here.
1: That's my dad. He's coming up in the pro stock car circuit, last race of the season. Uh, A guy named Kenny Linder came up from inside on the final turn clipped his bumper and put him into the wall at 120. Um, I watched my dad burn to death.
0: I talked about before in our review how it's, you know, this isn't my language that they're talking, but they're unmistakably sincere. There's no posturing, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I don't sense any posturing here. It's just a scene where Dom shows Brian his garage and opens up a little bit about his past.
1: I live my life a quarter mile at a time. Nothing else matters, not the mortgage, not the store, not my team and all their bullshit.
0: For those 10 seconds or less, I'm free. I think that it speaks to also that being in the moment ethos that drives the best action scenes. There's a purity there. And it's a little bit a earlier version of what I talked about introducing my list, the just the moment comment that Natalie Kelly makes in Tokyo Drift. Here, Dom talks about being in the moment, and uh, I just like how that echoes something that will carry through even the action scenes. Yeah. It really is where one kind of
2: goes off the rails for me, unfortunately. And it's not irony so much as What you said in terms of growing into their characters, they really do grow into their characters. and They really do grow into their performances. They both, Diesel and Walker, get so much better as this series goes on. And it's not the lack of sincerity. It's too much sincerity. It's the over-earnestness that I didn't feel in that Brian and Mia scene that I had at number five. And I felt, Josh, that it was so forced in there to give this character. Oh, no, depth. they're
0: they're comfortable. They're so comfortable
2: there. <laughs> they're comfortable there, but the way it's forced into the script is what stuck out like a sore thumb to me. And I do think ultimately the ethos he verbalizes there doesn't even hold up over the course of the
0: series that much. So, it felt like a he little bit a of pseudo macho yeah, watching to me. it again, he has a line there about, uh, you know, it, uh, he Nothing doesn't even matters. care about his family, yeah. which isn't something they've no. established yet. So, yeah, I get that. But overall, this idea of the purity of the race, why they're in this, mm. again, beyond the money, beyond the phone numbers that you get from girls, that was there right at the start and that, of this conversation. That stuff, that stuff about his dad and... The guy he hit that hit you hard. Oh yeah, when he when he talks about being uh, how he was scared. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it brings a level of humanity. This that this it is tries. somebody that this is somebody who can be scared, and mm-hmm. it also speaks to another through line. Now that you mentioned that, is when he talks about how he got banned from the races for this act of violence. There's this consideration over how violent is Dom going to get and I think it is which film is it where the first one with the rock so fast five five, but where he holds off it's six (laughs) where he holds off the wrench from just no, actually you know, I go back it's five. It You're is right. Five. Yeah, because that's when the first time we see the rock. Mm-hmm. And he's he could crack the I rock know. skull over. So uh, which it's, I'm yeah. pretty sure they'd so actually already done at least there's a lot that. of yeah, it's a it's a through line. So yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of bedrock stuff in one that the other series feeds off of and I think that's because there's some pretty strong stuff there. Okay. I'm glad you feel that way. My number four is a
2: scene that I have to give full credit to our partner over at FilmSpotting streaming video unit, Allison Wilmore, because after I saw seven the next day, her BuzzFeed ranking of the series popped up in my Facebook feed and she had a little line in there about basically like, come at me, you know, and it's like, okay, well, how audacious can these be? How contrarian could her picks be? And I looked and you think you're putting the fourth film at number one is a little bit nuts. How about Tokyo Drift as oh, the best she? I was going to say,
0: please tell me she didn't go too fast, too In the furious.
2: franchise, no, that would have been so awesome. <laughs> but reading that clinch for me that I was going to go back and watch Tokyo Drift or watch it for the first time ultimately. And I might not have been as tuned into this moment without her focus on it. And it's the scene where Lucas Black's character, Sean, is riding with Neela. I think her name is. You've mentioned the actress a couple times. Natalie but Kelly, yeah. They are in this chase sequence with the Drift King the the baby gangster here in this movie and they're going through Shibuya crossing this incredibly busy intersection. And Allison describes it this way. She says it's the series' most sublime moment. The neon-lit intersection is one of the busiest in the world, but as people scramble out of the way of the charging car for a moment, everything is still. It's not the speed that's the most thrilling part of the series after all. Despite the name, it's the quiet in the midst of all of it that's where the lunatic lyricism can be found. And she's right. As you watch it, it isn't just the stillness of it that catches you off guard a little bit and kind of allows you to breathe amidst this insanity of this chase sequence. It's the visuals themselves. You mentioned how Justin Lin kind of pushed things forward a little bit, and I agree with that to an extent because I think it's the only... Frame you could take out of any Fast and Furious movie and actually compare it to a Kira movie because it feels just like the scene we love so much, Josh, in Like Someone in Love, Mm -hmm. one of his recent films, the reflection of those lights on the windshield as they're sort of frozen in time for a moment. Again, as Allison says, in a series, it's all about speed, 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 to have that one moment where everything just calms and then we get right
0: back to the chase it is Sublime, and it's my number four. You know what one stands out to me like that as well? It's an honorable mention, but I'll just throw it out there now since we're talking about these quiet moments, is at the very beginning of Fast Five, where Brian and Mia are on the run. It's just setting up the film, and we get this slow scene of them driving at regular speed. They look dirty mm-hmm. and sweaty and tired. And I remember thinking, am I watching the right film? Because I've never seen a car go this slow. You're talking about five. Yeah, <laughs> five. yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's one of the reasons... I love that movie and talk about how sophisticated it is compared to the others is because of the way it opens. Yeah, that that's really good. All right. We're up to number three and my number three comes from my favorite fast and furious movie, fast and furious. I'm going to call it driving to the dark side. It's what you alluded to earlier at the end here. Now, foremost, among the reasons why this is my favorite one is because I think it really explores most deeply the idea of the theme of the cop and robber being two sides of Mm -hmm. the same coin. And this is common to Hong Kong action movies like Drug War or Infernal Affairs. And it's really well executed here, I think, with Brian and Dom both going undercover. They have their own reasons for doing this to take down a drug lord. It's really a repairing of this relationship movie because they're still at odds when it begins and they slowly come together by the end and the final moment, this ending, is what I do want to pick. It's after Dom's been captured. He's been convicted. So he's on his way to jail on a prison bus and, of course, it's as all roads lead in the Fast and Furious franchise through a barren desert with mountainous (laughs) terrain in the background. So they're driving along and suddenly this team of cars zooms up from behind, which we know mean to rescue him and who's driving the lead car it's brian which means he's made a clean break here from the law Mm -hmm. and he's now officially committing to dom's team it's a quick scene but i love the details he's in a black car which maybe you think doesn't mean much but he's also an american muscle car which maybe you think doesn't mean much but we know he usually prefers bright imports right that's brian's style but not here also dom sitting in the prison bus i love how he knows what's going on how (laughs) the engine of course here's the engine he's like okay that's all i need to know and this leads to what i think is a great cliffhanger engine Mm -hmm. where we don't see what happens until the next film as you talked about i just i just love how they at this point they had the confidence and the commercial clout to be able to do that in a way that really does pay Mm -hmm. off well going back to my number five pick there's something always a little bit thrilling about
2: watching someone finally figure out who they are Even if they're going to the dark side, Uh as it turns out, or what many might perceive, society might perceive as the dark side, at least he's finally embraced his true calling, which up to this point he hasn't been able to do. Before we get to my number three, we did put out a feeler on Facebook and Twitter for some voicemails. We asked our listeners to weigh in with their favorite Fast and Furious moment. We got this from Josh Youngerman. He is in Bushwick, New York. Um, Scene where Letty saves uh, Dom in Furious 7, and then the scene where Dom saves Letty in Furious 6. Uh, The reason I think these work so well is they sort of underline the themes of family um, and love that this series has, and also, as ridiculous as the action is in these movies, and they are ridiculous, the reason it's grounded is because uh, you actually care about the characters. So, um, I think that central relationship, while you know, the bromance is still very strong, uh, that central relationship is key to why these Fast and Furious films speak to such a wide audience. Thank you very much. So Josh, as you're well aware, Josh Youngerman, a huge fan of this franchise. He likes his I Fast mean, and Furious movies. We <laughs> like to think we're, we're experts, we're <laughs> dilettantes compared to Josh at this point, and he did cheat a little bit there, connecting scenes from two different movies with Letty and Dom, and that dovetails nicely into my number three pick. It's another dialogue scene. It's another key line of dialogue, I think, in this whole series. It's from Furious 6. And as much as I do think this is a step down from Fast Five, it's in this exchange, which happens between Dom, Vin Diesel, and the bad guy, Owen Shaw, where Dom's true ethos and by extension the ethos that truly grounds this whole franchise is laid out and it's certainly all over Furious 7 it isn't that quarter mile at a time macho talk it's the living by a code that puts family above all else and as we noted during our review family doesn't just mean who you're related to by blood
1: that's great in the holidays but it makes you predictable and in our line of work predictable means vulnerable And that means I can reach out and break you whenever I want. At least when I go, I'll know what it's for. Well, at least you have a code.
2: Dom's great line there. At least when I go, I'll know what it was for. Pardon me, Josh, for trying to make this all a little bit deeper than it may truly be. But what more can any of us ask for when we go, really? Yes, yes. Family and that type of love and that type of connection is messy. It does make you vulnerable, but it's more meaningful and it's more satisfying than something like what drives the other guy, which is precision. The little chat does end nicely, too, with one of Shaw's men ready to take Dom out because he knows Dom isn't going to break his code. So he comes prepared to not let him disrupt his plan. But of course, Dom has some backup of his own, as we see in The Rock, and we get this nice little... Showdown between these two rivals. This whole conversation is something that could almost be taken out and plopped into a classic Western on the streets of some frontier town between these two gunslingers. And I really like that scene, but I really like what it's ultimately about and how it connects to the whole series
0: or the whole franchise more than anything. Yeah, I did like that precision ethos that the Luke Evans character had. That's why I think he's one of the better villains is he's not just this drug yeah, lord. Yeah, at least he has a code. He, he has this vague goal. That's for sure the James Bond villain goal, but but I do like how you see that in even the cars that his team has, this mm-hmm. sense of precision. So uh, he's, he's definitely a plus in that film. My number two is... Is coming from the conventional favorite Fast Five, and it's the cliff jump. This is at the end of the Brevera opening set piece. After Dom has rescued Brian, just before he collides, he's jumping off this train that's gonna and he's gonna collide into the bridge that's going over this enormous canyon. So he jumps on Dom's car, doesn't crash, but then they're too close to the edge. So what are they going to do? Well, Dom hits the gas, of course. What else would he do? And gives them as much elevation as possible, the chance to time their jumps from the car into the river that's way, way, way down below. Again, it's a single shot, really, that I'm picking out here. When we cut to that medium shot, looking at Dom and Brian from the hood of the car, slow motion, the music and sound effects cut out, except for the wind. All we hear, there's Mm -hmm. this purity to it. And their faces. I mean, if you if you think about, now, how does an action star act, really, besides having charisma, maybe, or a persona? How do you actually act in, when you're doing something? They're not actually jumping off this cliff, but they're still acting out action. And they really, the expressions they pull work. I mean, you get a rare yeah. look of concern from Dom in sure. this scene. Like he's, he's not quite sure how this is going to go. Brian, one thing I like about Paul Walker throughout the series, he often will show fear Mm -hmm. when something crazy is going on. And you definitely see that flicker of fear here. Yet both of them, there's something else on their look that says, this is surmountable. We can figure this out. (laughs) If we've survived everything Uh else, we can figure this out. So they're not just purely scared. So even if this was all CGI, I think those faces would make it worth it. And they did use a green screen for that medium shot. But I did look, and I found, maybe we'll link to it in show notes, uh, how they did it sequence as well. And they used an air cannon to launch a Corvette into a canyon, not quite as high up, but they launched the Corvette out. Then they also had the stunt guys separately jump from the same spot. Mm. And then they put the two sequences together in post-production. But man, it definitely has, you buy it when you watch it, you buy the whole thing.
2: You definitely do. And I actually have that same sequence from Fast Five as my number two, but
0: there's a
2: specific moment I'm going to Single out that's different from the cliff jump. The train heist, though, I think overall is just a really thrilling sequence. It, and it might be really that first demarcation line that we've gone from the previous world, that split we touched on earlier, to this new James Bond, Jason Bourne, Mission Impossible world where something like that cliff jump. That seems totally ridiculous, but in the moment you completely buy it. That's where this shift really starts to happen with this franchise. And I'm going to keep the Western theme going a little bit here, because if you think about it, this sequence 60 years ago or so would have happened very similarly, except with horses horses. riding up alongside the train and they'd be riding horses. They'd be stealing money or diamonds or something instead of confiscated cars. And they definitely would not have had that vehicle lift thingy that allows them to so conveniently slide cars off the train and then drive drive the cars onto the ground safely. I suppose, Josh, it probably wouldn't end with our two heroes riding their horses off a cliff into the water and surviving either. But this is the world of Fast and the Furious. Otherwise, I think John Ford would have shot it exactly the same way (laughs) Justin Lin does. The barren Brazilian landscape actually seems ripped from a Ford movie. And I'm going to push it a little bit more here with my favorite part of the sequence. It's not. O'Connor just barely making it onto Dom's vehicle before hitting the bridge or that jump. It's Vin Diesel's entrance. The movie opens with Brian and Mia and Vince, one of the characters from Fast and Furious One, and them agreeing to take this job, which they think is just them stealing some cars. Diesel hasn't actually shown up on screen yet at this point they haven't connected with them and that lift vehicle thing pulls up alongside the train we don't really know who's driving it or who's on it and they start to cut the metal and because i'm not a gear guy or any kind of tool guy i can't tell you what that thing is that but is called a uh, metal cutter metal cutter thank you josh i knew i had you around for good reason they cut this big open gap enough to fit a car in in this moving train and Lynn then cuts to inside, where, of course, it's dark because they're inside the train. But as that metal side of the train falls off, the light comes in. And who walks in? But Vin Diesel. He emerges from the light into the light, actually, where we see that close-up of his face. And I'd have to go back and watch it, but it feels like a little bit of a track forward on his face for dramatic effect, a la John Wayne and his entrance in Stagecoach. I think it's a really nice visual moment that Lynn allows us as viewers to catch our breath, to welcome our hero, the alpha male, onto screen before the chaos really ensues. Or how
0: about the searchers? The end of the searchers, the yeah. sort of silhouette where you see the vista behind. You're right, him absolutely. Too. So yeah, yeah, that is just a fabulous sequence. All right, my number one is racing across the train tracks from, yes, Adam, your favorite, The Fast and the Furious, the ending of the first film. Really? Yeah. Oh, I, I love this scene. Old school. It's, it's the ultimate Fast and Furious moment for me because it's a thrilling stunt that also defines so much about the characters. Uh, these are the final moments. This is after Brian has tried to convince Dom to turn himself in. They end up having this argument, and it— gets more complicated than this. Some bad guys show up, but basically at the end, they're left together and they're going to settle this with an impromptu street race as so often happens. They end up communicating everything from this point on through their actions. And it gets extra complicated once the race begins because a train starts approaching at the crossing that's lying ahead. So everything is heightened here. Once the train shows up, is that going to convince Dom that he should give up and turn himself in? Like this is, you know what? You've had a good run, pull over. If not, how far is Brian going to go to catch him is the next question. Is he going to risk crossing the tracks himself? So it's a test for both of them in so many ways. And then we get that sublime shot. Just after they've crossed and escaped, they have burst through the gates, and the train just fills the screen behind them. You've got the two cars and the train racing behind them. Uh, the capper is that they smile at each other in relief and also the thrill they've just experienced. It, it sort of defines this character camaraderie and the conflict that's really going to go on to define, for me, the heart of the series until they do get to be on the same team. Once mm. that tension leaves, some of the attractiveness to me for the series leaves a little bit too. But here it's there. It's setting so much up. Um, I don't know if any, I couldn't find anything about how they shot this sequence, if any CGI was used here or if they actually somehow timed that with the train. But it again, it is entirely convincing and my favorite Fast and Furious moment. It's
2: a great moment. I liked it better when it was surfing in Point Break, you but it's a good point moment. Point Break? Jeez. <laughs> I do it just to annoy you. <laughs> don't ever try to copy point break it can't be done better well we're gonna see someone try it as it's being remade so i'm sure i'm going to loathe that film yes my number one after all this attempts at pontificating about connections to westerns and the ethos of the franchise and these serious moments i got nothing more it comes down to flying cars as listener Jarrett green said it on facebook in fast seven when they drive dang cars out of a dang plane
0: really yes Come on, just in terms of pure, just the craft of that whole sequence. But you've criticized the CGI in other scenes. That's got to be a lot of CGI, don't you think? Yeah,
2: but it's not about CGI. It's about when you notice the CGI and it feels fake. And I do actually remember you brought up in Furious 7 during our review, the A-Team and how they dropped a tank out of the plane. I've seen that sequence actually, you know, flipping through channels. It's done much better here. It's horrible. I mean, granted, it's a tank and you don't care about any of the characters (laughs) and it's not all these different cars and whatever, but everything about how this is crafted versus just the mass chaos of that and the bad kind of chaos, not the Zen kind that you appreciate and that I appreciate as well. There's none of that craft in something like the A-Team. Owen Shaw would appreciate the precision of everything about this sequence. And I just think the whole sequence works. It's that flip you talked about. It's the last second escape Paul Walker has. But it was just feeling that bit of vertigo, watching these cars on that big IMAX screen and then watching them somehow perfectly land exactly, well, except for one of them, land precisely where they're supposed to land and then see them carry out their plan. There was something beautiful
0: about it. You know what? I'll give you this. That's finally where Tyrese won me over it mm-hmm. took it took six films <laughs> when his bravado <laughs> but, just degenerated into abject fear yeah
2: i kind of liked him there and that felt authentic that's my number one flying cars in furious seven and those are our top five fast and furious moments we have another voicemail josh i wanted to get to a longtime listener christopher Redman.
1: Hey Adam and Josh, it's Christopher Redman here from DearCastAndCrew.com. I want to thank you guys for giving a little love to Fast and the Furious. Uh, This most recent film is certainly worth discussing, if for no other reason than I defy you to find a franchise that has gotten so much better and successful with each new film. I mean, Furious 7 actually made more money in its first day than Tokyo Drifted altogether. And I only jumped on the bandwagon with Fast Five, where that train sequence single-handedly elevated the series, in my opinion, to must-see status for all action fans. But my favorite moment is actually the post-credit clip from Fast and Furious 6. Now, without giving anything away, they kill off a major and beloved character after the movie was done. I mean, after the movie was done. Think about that. Not only that, but they also introduced my man crush, Jason Statham, as the big bad for Furious 7. So the last two years of waiting have been kind of torture as a result, but the wait was worth it. This series is truly pushing what's possible in action cinema, and I defy anyone to see it and not have a good time. So thanks, guys, but if you'll excuse me, daddy's got to get to work.
2: So he too loves the train sequence at the beginning of Fast Five, but his number one, I'm embarrassed to admit because I never stick around for these, is the post credit sequence. Number six. I saw a couple people reference this, that everybody knew that Jason Statham was going to be the bad guy in Furious 7 because it was foretold in
0: Fast and Furious 6. I didn't know that. Yeah. We stuck around for those credits. Saw that too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the music, how could you not? Why would you want to turn that music off? (laughs) No, that's that's a good point. We do
2: lose a key character at the end of that as well, but I'm going to have to put the DVD back in and watch it just to enjoy it as much as Christopher did. What about any honorable mentions, Josh, that
0: you really regretted leaving off? your Fast and Furious moments. Well, Joshua Youngerman talked about the Dom-Laddy relationship, which I did really appreciate throughout this franchise. So I thought about putting the one that I think he may be referencing or it might come right after that where they're comparing scars. Dom, at this point, she still has amnesia. I love that that. there is an amnesia subplot in this franchise as well. That actually works. Of course there is. And because it goes back to Jason Bourne a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. And here he's trying to jog her memory by comparing the scars. Mm -hmm. One that they've got together at the same time. So that's from fast and furious six dragging the vault at the end of fast five. I mean, that that's another reason I think people hold that up as the favorite because it's a book with these huge action set pieces and dragging the vault is pretty good. And then I did have one. I thought about from furious seven, not the flying cars, but plain chicken twice in this film. There's a game of chicken that ends. I at least have never seen a game of chicken in a film end this way. (laughs) No one's dared. Speaking of mating rituals in (laughs) cars. A little bit. A little bit. So I thought about that one. Okay. Well, I've got a few here as well,
2: including from Tokyo Drift. Another one I did think about when Sean has his first race in Tokyo against the Drift King. Not only because we get some great camera stuff, but because he gets so soundly thumped. And that little bit of humor as he limps to the finish line works the fuel tanker hijack at the beginning of your favorite fast and furious four mm-hmm. because it calls back to fast and furious one and you think about how that movie begins and ends we haven't seen these characters in two or three so it's like Ryan right? right away said hey i'm getting the gang back together here and everything's right with the world with that hijack scene very similar as i touched on during our seven review when the rock and vin diesel finally throw down <laughs> after all that testosterone and that back and forth they finally just get to unleash it on each other in five i like that the tank rescue at the end of six is also really good and in terms of just pure humor the best line in the whole franchise is in fast five when the team reunites and tyrese asks ludicrous if he's going to give martin luther king's car back and ludicrous says to tyrese as soon as he gives rick james's jacket back I'm sorry. Like that, huh? I thought that was funny. But just to rub it in, just to rub it Not in another Tyrese moment. No, I've got. Well, yeah, actually, it doesn't involve Tyrese because it's from <laughs> Too Fast, Too and Furious. I, the oh. Warehouse Scramble, the warehouse scramble as part of the big set piece in that movie. I think our friend, the very wise, the very wise Sean Gilman, the dean of the film spotting forum, one of the key members of the film spotting advisory board. I think in his letterbox review, he compared it to Minnelli. Really, with
0: the colors well, there dancing. is.: that, Yeah, and there is that overhead shot. Where the overhead shot. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. It's good. Come on. And Tyrese is in it. He's very far away. He's very far away. For the record, I think Tyrese is very good in Baby Boy. He's Singleton's very good, Baby, in Baby Boy. Boy. So he's I, I do like him as an actor. I, I think just a bit this too series much? does not do him justice. Really? I mean, come on. It, he's, I think. I think they used
2: him just right in Seven. Could have gone yes, a little bit too far. I agree. They used him just right. He won me over seven. by seven. Now, why would you trust us? You barely know us. I know enough. (sighs) Ex-cop, military, something like that.
0: The way you took out them guys, shows training. Tech guy, offended by the hacker remark, naturally. Alpha. Mrs. Alpha. Joker. Wrong. (sighs) Double Alpha. Man candy. You know what I'm saying? Man, set your candy ass (laughs) down.
1: (laughs)
2: Giving, no respect, Tyrese Gibson there, the last word. That is our top five Fast and Furious moments from back in April 2015. You can find our picks over at filmspotting.net. Just click on lists at the top of the page. And yeah, we'll probably have to revisit this yet again, especially because Fast and Furious 10 has already been announced, Josh.
0: Yeah, do you think that that button scene they had mid-credits, was that teasing 10, or is that like another side movie they're going to give point. us? Good point. It was hard to tell.
2: Yeah, that's, that's not something I'm going to spend any more time thinking about. But I'm okay. glad you asked. It's a good question.
0: <laughs> <laughs> with that, we're done. Show's yeah. over. Yeah. If you want to connect the, with us. That's the show. On Facebook and Twitter. Maybe tell us if, if you think F9 has a top five worthy moment. I'd like to hear that. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at FilmSpotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the Film Spotting poll. We're asking what's the best basketball movie? To order show t shirts or other merch, visit FilmSpotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at FilmSpotting.net slash newsletter. Out on digital this weekend.
2: I love this. It's called The Ice Road. Here's the plot, Josh. A rescue mission over a frozen ocean to save trapped miners in a collapsed diamond mine in the far northern regions of Canada. And here's the best part. Having not looked at these notes at all before just now, my brain immediately as I scanned that said, that's got to star Liam Neeson, right? (laughs) And sure enough, (laughs) next sentence, Liam Neeson adds driving over a frozen ocean to his very particular set of skills
0: there you go now adam if this were a fast and furious movie the mine would be under the ocean right that's how they do it yeah what are they going to do in f10 by the way they they've
2: gone to space josh are they going to go to the bottom of the ocean they've already been in a submarine that's true i I don't know i I don't even know if i can wait to see (laughs) f9 also out in wide release see it don't see it tell us about it if you do feedback at filmspotting.net next week we are going to take a week off we are both taking family vacations not together Mm. separate but we are going to enjoy a little bit of time away and do you think adam we sound like we need it after the show yeah maybe (laughs) in two weeks we will come back we are planning to have two
0: new movie reviews black widow and steven soderbergh's no sudden move Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Disseau and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson.
2: And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.